Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I trust that you all had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Lots of turkey. I love a nation where we set up, set aside an entire day to eat food. I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, as we talk about coveting, I, you know, I'm going to talk about how much I like to eat. But Thanksgiving presents to us a contrast, doesn't it? We're supposed to set aside this holiday for the purpose of being thankful. And then immediately afterward, we go shopping. We, we set aside an entire day for Thanksgiving, and then we follow it up with a side helping of materialism. It's as if to say you should be thankful for all the things that God has given you, but you really need this new toaster for $49.99. Of course, we're familiar with the Black Friday videos, the trampling of people that happens, the craziness, the uh, chaos that comes on that particular day. And if I were to guess this morning, if we were to kind of sit down with each one of us and kind of poke and prod into the spiritual essence of our life, and we were to sit down with these later second table commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not um, bear false witness. This morning's commandment would be the one that we really struggle with the most. This concept of coveting is so hard for our sinful hearts to leave behind. You can say, I can go without things. Some of us this morning, we have this orientation that we can go without things. Some of us are are wearing the same clothes that we were wearing 20 years ago. We're driving the same cars that we drove 20 years ago. We live in the same house that we've lived in for 30 years, and we think, this commandment doesn't touch me, right? But it's not just about stuff. Sometimes it's about position in life. The person who's convinced that they don't need anything else might be jealous or covetous of his boss's scenario, or he might be jealous or covetous of his neighbor's scenario. See, coveting isn't about stuff at all. It's about desiring. And all of us have desires deep down, some of them righteous and some of them unrighteous. All of us want something. So the question before us this morning, what is it that you want? And is it in accord with the the things that God wants? See, I think as we kind of unpack this commandment this morning, here's going to be the general big idea that we're setting in front of you. As long as we treasure Christ, God's provision for us is always enough. If we start with the building block, the foundation in the right spot, the building kind of tends to go up the right way, right? If, If we treasure Christ, all of the other things we have tend to fall in place in the right ways in our heart and mind. It's when we lose sight of who Christ is and the provision that God has given us that things take on an undue importance, that things become that much more important to us. And it's not just things, but, but positions and, and people and other things. They, they take on this undue importance for us. 
So what I have for us here this morning is just three general observations that I think will help us kind of cut to the heart of coveting, and we'll kind of unpack those. And then at the end, as we typically do, we'll kind of uh, notice how the gospel speaks to this particular commandment and how it kind of rebuilds us in Christ so that we can fulfill what God has required of us here in Exodus chapter 20. So here's our observations. Observation number one, coveting isn't an, an external act. It's an internal act. It's something that happens within myself. Observation number two, coveting can center on anything. And observation number three, coveting breaks the first commandment as well as the tenth. Let's start with our first observation. Coveting isn't an external act. We've seen uh, that there is a kind of pattern uh, among the Ten Commandments. Uh, Alec Mateer is a commentator. He wrote a book on Exodus, and he highlights this. He says, you know, the first and second commands, that you shall have no other gods before me, you shall worship no graven images, are sins of the mind. The third commandment, that we would not take the Lord's name in vain, is a sin of the mouth. And the fourth commandment, that we would keep the Sabbath day, is a sin of action, right? Commandments 5 through 8 are sins of action. That's murder, adultery, um, bearing—excuse me, why am I missing the seventh commandment? Hey, let's skip that one, go on to the eighth, right? And the ninth commandment—excuse me, the ninth commandment is one of action, it is the idea that we would, um, my goodness, I should write these things down. They're right in front of me here in Exodus chapter 20, uh, that, that we should not steal. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, that's the one I was missing. The, the sin of the mouth is bearing false witness. And finally, command number 10 is the sin of the mind, the covetousness, the desiring of something, someone else, Right. See, the first and second commandments match the tenth in that they all have to do with this orientation of the hearts. They all have to do with this idea that there's something internal to me that might not be externally seen, but they're this position before the Lord. See, in relation to the other commandments, coveting is internal. There's no physical evidence that results from your covetousness. The other second table commands, you know, it's commandments six through nine, they orient toward things outside myself. Right? Chapter or commandment six tells us not to take a life. Commandment seven not tells us not to take someone else's wife. Commandment eight tells us not to take other people's things. Commandment nine tells us not to take their reputation. But here in verse 17, the commandment that we have in front of us this morning is entirely internal to us. This command is entirely inside of us, and we could break this command without any other person on earth knowing that it ever happened. See, this truth is this morning is that God is interested, not just what happens on the outside, what's visible to others. Our God is interested in what happens inside of you, the way that you think, the way that you respond, the way that you process. God wants to know the things that are happening inside of you, and he wants you to be aware of the things that are happening inside of you. See, the 10th commandment deals with our desires. In fact, if we were kind of kind of dig into our text this morning, that word desire is actually the way that word covet is most often translated in the Old Testament. Some 11 times, this word that we see as covet here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, usually shows up as the word desire. 
The Bible speaks a lot about our desires. There's good desires. Um, Paul tells us that if anyone desires to be an elder, that that's a good thing. But then there's bad desires. It's uh, Jesus tells us that if we look at a woman with lustful desire in our heart in Matthew 5, we've committed adultery with her. Galatians 5.17 warns us that the spirit and flesh are opposed to the desires of one another, right? See, the upshot is this. A proper desire, one that honors God, has to start in the right place to function in the right way. A desire that honors God has to start with a God-centered, God-honoring desire so that it grows into the proper action and wanting. Does that make sense? Consider it this way. If I take a bottle rocket and I plant it in my backyard and I light it, it will light up the night sky. It's doing what it's supposed to do. But if I take a bottle rocket into my bathtub and I light it in my bathroom, it will not do the thing it's supposed to do. It will do some other destructive things that it's not supposed to do. See, our desires are the same way. When our desires are submitted to God's authority in our life, they are righteous and holy. Let's not forget this morning that righteous desire is a gift from a gracious God to you. But when we desire things apart from God, when we cultivate a life independent of God, things tend to go poorly for us. We kind of get askew from God's purpose, and and eventually we find ourselves lost in the midst of our desires, our wanting. So this morning, what we're affirming this morning is that God sees inside of us. God sees on the inside. I know I was cringing when I wrote that sentence out this morning, thinking, am I really going to say that God sees what happens on the inside? It seems like we're having a Sunday school lesson. This is the most remedial lessons that we have for us, that God sees the things that we think, the things that we want, the things that we desire. God knows us even better than we know ourselves. The Bible speaks openly about this thing called the heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life, or from, the, from it flow the springs of life. The Bible's constantly calling us to consider the state of our hearts, the internal realities of our life. There's a story of of two characters in the Old Testament, one named Saul and one named David, and we're familiar with these stories, right? Saul is, is one who was kind of named king. He was tall and handsome, and so he made a natural king, according to the Israelites. And so they kind of push him to the center. Saul becomes king. But eventually Saul failed to obey God. And it became clear that, that God had rejected Saul as king. So God sends the prophet Samuel to go find another king in the house of Jesse. And Jesse has all of these young strapping sons. And he parades them one by one in front of Samuel. And constantly God is telling Samuel, That's not the man that I've chosen. That's not the man that I've chosen. That's not the man that I've chosen. And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, do you not have any other sons? And he says, well, there's my son that we we put over the sheep, right? So they bring him back in. And sure enough, this is the one that God has called this young shepherd boy. What's notable about this story is in 1 Samuel 16, where this account is happening, God says these words to the prophet Samuel. He says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
It is a valuable lesson in the life of Samuel, as the entire books of First and Second Samuel are asking this question, what nature, what manner of man is capable of leading God's people? And it's not just that David is capable of leading God's people, but God looks on the heart, and there's one who would come. There's one who would come who would lead God's people, who would be pure of heart. God looks not on the outside. He looks at the inside. God sees the unseen in us. I don't know if you've ever seen these videos that's a, where a psychologist or someone who, who uh, studies kind of mannerisms and actions and communication patterns, they can kind of break down what someone's really thinking as they're speaking. They'll do this with politicians, with witnesses, whatever else. It's, they can break down the way that they uh, position their head or the way they lean forward or lean backward or however else that they can tell whether they're telling the truth or telling a lie or whatever else it is but they still occasionally get it wrong. See, only God sees the heart. Only He can assess our desire. See, the upshot is this. Our coveting is an internal internal reality that only God sees. You can come in this morning with this deeply covetous heart, and none of us would ever know you can hide that sin deeply inside of yourself, and no one here would know the, the difference. So, coveting is internal. Second observation we have is that coveting can center on anything. And notice the terms that are listed here in our passage passage in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. We've got this list that's given to us. There's houses, there's wives, there's servants, there's oxen or donkeys. Like I've never heard someone in the contemporary moment say, man, that's a nice donkey. Nobody says that today, right? We've got a little bit of a, a loss between what's happening in Exodus chapter 20 and what's happening in 2023 in the United States of America, right? But all of these things, it gives a list of items that could be coveted, but not a list of only the items that could be coveted, right? There are many different things that could be listed here. They're as diverse as we could imagine. The point is that anything can be coveted, even the things we already possess. Just as a social experiment sometime, hand two different three-year-olds two different colored balloons and see what happens. I want the red one. I want the blue one. They'll fight it out because even though they have a balloon, they want the other one's balloon. See, there's this story, in, in, again, in Samuel, where Nathan confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba. And he uses this illustration of, of this man who has all of these sheep, and he goes and steals the one sheep from this individual who only has one sheep. But the point is that David had many wives and chose to steal the, life, the wife of Uriah and the life of Uriah, go figure, even though he had so many already. It's bound up in our hearts, no matter how much we have, how abundant we are, it doesn't stop our heart from being covetous, does it? Further, there's this statement in our text this morning in Exodus 20, verse 17. Look at what he says. He says, you know, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. See, this covetous desire can settle upon anything. Given the right context in the right time, my sinful heart can settle on a paperclip. 
I can become covetous of the smallest, most insignificant thing that I can think of because my sinful heart is just so off kilter with the Lord's. See, we do so because someone else, excuse me, we fixate on these things because our sinful hearts desire wrongly. You and I have become fully uh, entrenched in a capitalistic society, haven't we? We have become uh, sold on the sizzle rather than the steak. Uh, we were sitting around kind of watching a, a football game sometime in the last couple of weeks, and and uh, a commercial came on, and it was for cologne. And it's Johnny Depp holding a guitar, and he's got so much eye makeup on, you can't even hardly tell who he is. And he's picking up this guitar, and somehow it's supposed to sell cologne. Uh, it was just one of the strangest things I think I've seen in a long time. Or the shampoo commercial, that traffic in this sexuality, or, or whatever else. It, they get started, uh, they, they kind of try to produce this want in us so that we desire to purchase these things because ultimately we want to be what the commercial portrays for us. We are constantly being manipulated as consumers so that we are desirous of things we don't need. Isn't that what marketing is? Convincing someone what they need when they don't really need it? See, our market hinges upon the purchase of goods that we actually don't have to have. Uh, most often, it dictates our needs to us. It tells us, you need this watch, you need this car, you need this in your house, you need this in your life, and it chooses to play upon your own covetous desires so that you become a consumer of goods and services. This is the place we live in, but it's it's not just that we covet possessions. Sometimes we covet positions. There's something unwritten in this commandment that's happening here, right? You notice that these are Israelites who have no houses. They have no place to live. They're there at Mount Sinai because they just left a place of slavery where they existed for 400 years. Some of them have various kinds of animals. Some of them have some kinds of goods that they've taken from Egypt. But by and large, they don't really have what this command kind of pictures, right? That's this life of this house with slaves that would serve them and animals that would do their work for them. See, the cumulative picture that this command presents is a house with servants and a stable full of animals. This was foreign to our Israelites that are here in this context. All of these things represent a life uh, that none of these Israelites possessed. And so the coveting that might be happening here is not necessarily for the things, it's for the position in life, the, the place where these Israelites might set their feet up and let someone else do the work for them where they might place themselves in some land or spot for the entirety of their life rather than being nomadic, traveling from site to site like these Israelites were. It's not just that they're covetous of these things individually, it's that they're covetous of the scenario that's being described here. See, we might not just be tempted by stuff, but we might also be tempted by stations in life. We might not be just tempted by materialism. We might be tempted by someone else's uh, situation, their, their goods, their, their kind of uh, uh, position in life. 
We want our neighbor's job or their marriage. We want their parentage or their progeny. We want what they have for ourselves. Now, the other thing we see in this is that this word is repeated time and time again. Your neighbor's. Is that what it says? Shall not covet your neighbor's house. Shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his donkey, or his ox, or anything that is your neighbor's. See, even though this sin is internal to us, it is decidedly relational. It has to do with our neighbor's stuff or their situation. And in fact, this word's listed here three times to kind of highlight that this is a relational thing that's happening. Primarily, we have envy or jealousy for another person's life or their stuff. We see our neighbor's seeming success or comfort in some arena of life, and we want it for ourselves. I'm going to use an analogy here that's fitting for our season, right? Because this movie comes on like every two minutes on the TV. You've seen It's a Wonderful Life, right? George Bailey, Mr. Potter. See, coveting makes us more like Mr. Potter than George Bailey. You remember the film. It, it, it happens in such a way that Mr. Potter is this kind of crotchety old man who, who has his desire for to eat up more and more of the business in this small little town, whereas George Bailey is trying to care for those who might be evicted in this place. And the example of Mr. Potter rings true. Those who are giving, given to coveting of resources do so at the loss of their own humanity. Mr. Potter becomes this kind of one-dimensional figure, doesn't he? he? He's only interested in money. He's only interested in collecting for himself. See, this morning as we talk about coveting, it's not just that coveting is internal to us. Coveting is horizontal to us. It, it desires the things of the world around us. It's not interested in anything vertical to us in relating to God. Coveting is, is about having what someone else has for myself. Paul tells us that we uh, primarily in Romans chapter 1 have exchanged the glory of God for the image of the form of things. Now, the way Paul states it, the image of the form, it's like a copy of a copy. It's not that we actually get a snake or a, a fish or whatever else. It's like a statue of a fish. And we're so actually changing the glory of God, the, the, the glorious creator who's made us, and we're trading him in at the pawn shop, as it were, for some kind of statue of some living thing. And he highlights the nature of this exchange later on. It says that the Lord hands us over to these things. He hands them over to impurity in chapter 1, verse 24. He hands them over to dishonorable passions in verse 26, and then he hands them over to a debased mind in verse 28. And it's just kind of this progressive nature, zeroing in particularly on the nature of their sexuality so that they're given first to this kind of wanton pleasure with, with uh, kind of a 
other women or other men. And then in verse 26, it's not only that, it's, there's a homosexuality that's described there. And then in verse 28, Paul culminates that it opens the door to all kinds of immorality. There's things like uh, being disobedient to parents. There's things, all kinds of items listed there at the end of Romans chapter 1. See, the highlight of this is to say that what Paul is saying is that when we exchange God for things— God hands us over to the full debased mind, the full debased heart, that we become in some way less a version of ourselves, less human. I love what happens in Jeremiah chapter 2, where the prophet comes back to the people of Israel, and he says, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you've dug out for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. You've changed God in for this broken, busted thing. One of the things I love about the scriptures is how articulate they are. In Psalm 73 and other places in the Old Testament, what we see is when we engage our sin and when we are handed over to our sinfulness, we become like beasts. Psalm 73 that it says that we become like brute beasts in Psalm 73, 22. That our, our sin, when it's just... Uh, wantonly pursued and engaged, it, it actually changes us and makes us less like human beings, more like this sinful inheritor of our father Satan and his actions. I'm told that a sermon isn't a sermon if there's not a quote from the Lord of the Rings, right? We're like Gollum. Gollum in the book starts off as this version of a hobbit, but through this selfish, desirous clinging to this item, this ring of power, he barely even looks like a hobbit anymore. So, coveting's internal to us. Coveting can center on anything. Number three, coveting breaks the first commandment. I say that's a strange thing to say, coveting breaks the first commandment. If you remember back, we, we talked about Martin Luther. Martin Luther saw that first commandment as the gateway to all the commandments, so that you cannot break commandments two through ten if you don't also break commandment number one, right? Commandment number one is simply this idea of we shall have no other gods before him. That's what verse three says. So if I'm going to covet I also have to be an idolater. I have to be one who worships another god. To covet is to trust something other than God. Not to say there is a god of houses or uh, wives or oxen, but to say we, we make those things into gods that we look to to bless us and to fulfill us. Uh, rather than trusting in the good thing that God has provided, we turn to the false things and elevate them to the status of God's. We worship them in our service, in our long hours at work, so that we can earn the extra pay or do the extra mile or whatever else that we have to kind of do to serve this idol so that it would bless us. See, coveting then is inside of us but once things outside of our reach, it's imperceptible to others, but seen by God, it's fundamentally uh, comprises our relationship to God and eventually our own uh, compromises, excuse me, our relation to God and our own humanity. 
See, when we break this first or 10th commandment, we break the first one. There's no such thing as just this innocent covetousness. And if we're going to pursue our desire to their degree, we have to see that in some ways we're not pursuing the Lord who wants to bless us in his time and in his way. You know, I think we could look back on all these Ten Commandments and we could say all of these Ten Commandments show us something about God, right? God is, uh, first of all, in the first and second commandment, it shows us that he's, he's one who desires, he's jealous for his worship. It's what is happening in the, in the um, forbidding of using the na- Lord's name in vain. God wants us to be thinking about his holiness and his righteousness. He wants to show us his glory and his majesty. And when we flippantly use his name, we violate his character. And then finally, he wants us to rest in him in the Sabbath day. He wants to keep the Sabbath day holy so that we find our rest in this goodness of God. God is the author of life, therefore he doesn't want us to be murderous. God is true to us, therefore he doesn't want us to be adulterous. God is one who does not speak lies, he speaks truth and wants us to be truth-tellers. Here in the Tenth Commandment, God is one who wants to provide for his people. That's why we've seen in that Seventh or Eighth Commandment and in the Tenth Commandment that we should not steal, we should not covet. Because God is the one who provides for us. See, this morning, I wonder if you and I are stuck between or beneath a kind of spiritual gravity. That no matter how much we desire to fly out into the heavenly realms, we are pinned here with all of our desires centered on these earthly things. And no matter what the Father provides, we'll always desire something better or something more. It's like you and I are birds in a cage. We know that we're meant for flight, but we're stuck inside this iron box of our desires. So the question in front of us is, who is going to save us from these things? What is the answer for us this morning? We need something more desirable than what this world has to offer. You and I need to be freed from our limitation of just desiring whatever this world provides. It's that old Cademan's Call lyric from the 90s. If you're a 90s kid like me, this world has nothing for me. This world has everything. All that I want, but nothing that I need. See, the truth this morning is that Jesus is always the better blessing that God provides. Jesus is always the better blessing. It doesn't matter what uh, physical, tactile thing or what uh, status in life you're looking to attain. Jesus is always the better thing. By faith, if you're in Christ, you can understand what I'm saying. I want to highlight this morning. I just want to bring us to this passage that I've just kind of been ruminating on for this last week. It's from Galatians chapter 6. Verse 14, I believe it's on the screen in front of us. I think that should be 614. It says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice what Paul is saying here. We have been crucified to the world. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are crucified to this world around you. When you go to work, you are crucified. When you go to Kroger, you are crucified. When you're driving in your car, you are crucified to the values of of this world. We're no good to them anymore. We've abandoned their upside-down, broken system. We've turned away from their way of doing things. We are crucified to the world. They get no leverage from us. But it's not just what Paul says there. It's the next phrase. He says, the world has been crucified to me. I have been crucified to the world, and I to the world. Uh, He flips it. He reverses it. I, I think I just messed it up there, but you get what I'm saying. The world has been crucified to us. The world is no good to us anymore. It no longer holds out any value for you if you are in Christ. There's nothing that you can pack away in your back pocket and take with you into the heavenly realms. There's no item, there's no status, there's no thing that you can kind of pack up with you and take with you for eternity. Everything else is lost, Paul says. Think about that statement in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul's laying out his resume. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I had persecuted the church. Paul had all the resume, and he says, I count them as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. See, Jesus has died so that the world might be crucified to us and we might be crucified to the world. But notice what else Paul says here at the beginning of this verse. He says, our only boast is in the cross of Christ. That is that the cross is all of our glory. To boast except in the cross of Christ. The only thing that's appropriate for us to glory in is Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything else that's good in life is derivative of the one good which God has given us in Christ. Now just pause here for a second. That doesn't mean that you're not allowed to enjoy coffee. God knows we we love football here. I hear lots of people complain to me about, I'm not a football guy. Do I fit in here? Yes, you fit in here. We can enjoy the other things of life derivatively after we've enjoyed them centrally in Christ. They are good things, blessings that God gives us that don't displace the main thing, Jesus. We can thank Jesus for those good things he's given to us. Does that make sense? See, primarily what Paul is saying here, I boast only in the cross of the Lord Jesus because the world's been crucified to me. I have been crucified to the world. I want to pull out two truths here. See, Jesus died that our attachment to our horizontal world might be severed, and Jesus was raised that we might be empowered to live in the world for his purpose. First, Jesus died that our attachment to our horizontal world might be severed, By Jesus' death, we are no longer bound to our horizontal life. 
We're no longer slaves to our desires. It's as if God has given Jesus to pry our fingers off of the world uh, that we so seemingly cling to. Right? So let's just make it practical for a second, right? You're watching the commercial. It's appealing to some perceived want that, that that's seeking to convince you that this thing is needed. It appeals to your sexuality, to your pride, to your comfort, to your fear, or whatever else. And now in Christ, you can look at that and say, I don't need that. I don't need it. I don't need Johnny Depp's cologne or perfume or whatever it is he's doing with a buffalo out in the middle of a desert. Who knows? I don't need the shampoo. Oh, you do need shampoo. You understand my meaning. I don't need it. It's not essential to me. I've been crucified to the world. The world has been crucified to me. Everything that I boast about is right there bound up in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Secondly, though, Jesus was raised that we might be empowered to live for his world, in his world, for his purpose. By his resurrection, we're free to see the vertical life which God has given us. And all the world's goods become good gifts from a good, loving God. And so, Christian, by your faith, you are united to Jesus in death and his resurrected life. Jesus' death is your death. Jesus' life is your life. And when we consider that, the prospect of a new house or wife or slave or cow seems pitiable compared to the glory of knowing Jesus. This thing that I desire will never provide as much hope and life and joy and peace as Christ. He alone is that well that will quench our thirst. It's as the hymn says, perhaps you're familiar with this, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we pursue the glory and grace of God in Christ, our connection to the world's stuff and positions subtly dissolves right before our eyes so that we desire the right things and we live in the way that God calls us to live. See, here's the, the task we have in front of us, right? We have to replace our desires to move beyond them. Say, so how do I do it? How do I stop... Uh, you know, watching the HGTV and just desiring this kitchen that's there? How do I stop desiring this other thing or this position at work or, or whatever else? You have to replace it with something more beautiful. If you simply try to stop desiring, I guarantee you, you're going to fail. If you desire the wrong things and you don't replace it with something better, you're just going to desire more of the wrong things. So you have to learn how to desire something better. And I think in the gospel, we have this powerful tool to say that I pull my hands off of the, the nature of this world by considering more of the beauties and excellencies of Jesus Christ. 
might give you a few encouragements that would help us in this endeavor. How do I replace this desire with this bigger view of Jesus? Well, for the first thing, I would say pray. Pray for a bigger view of Jesus. Pray for a deeper understanding, for a deeper communion with Christ, that, that these desires that I have for the wrong things would be replaced with desires for the right things. And I, I just would encourage you to, to pray, to ask God to, to give you the right desires, the right wants. Second thing I would do is encourage you to rub shoulders with people who exhibit a massive love for Jesus Christ statement that someone told me when I was in junior high is birds of a feather flock together. And if you surround yourself with materialistic kind of position-oriented people, I guarantee you that you are going to become more materialistic and position-oriented. Rub shoulders with people who exhibit a massive love for Jesus so that you might kind of inherit their massive love for Jesus for yourself. So we pray, we fellowship, and then we read. You had to know it was going to end with reading, right? And I'm not just talking about books. Books, are they come and they go. But I would center yourselves on passages. I would commit to memory Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He's the image, the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. John 1, 1 through 5. These passages give us a great sense of the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. There's hundreds of them in the New Testament places where the glory of Christ just bleeds through the passage, through the text. And when we kind of insert them into our minds and into our hearts and we, we dwell upon them, we stew upon them, guess what? Our affections change. Our desires change. So my encouragements to you are to pray, to fellowship, to read, so that we might put away and put aside this materialism that just exists like barnacles on the hall of the Christian soul, that just slow us down, that just encumber us unnecessarily? I guess we'll close with this question. What would your life look like, spiritually speaking, if you inserted the disciplines into your life to treasure Christ more and more above earthly things? Now, I say that confession this morning as one who went Black Friday shopping on Friday, right? I don't have this all figured out. The commercials play upon my mind. I am convinced that I need X and Y and Z to be happy, and I have to speak the good news of the gospel to my soul. I don't need that. Christ has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And someday those things will disappear and all that will remain is my deeds written in God's book of life, the things that I have pursued for eternity. Paul uses this interesting analogy in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that, that we uh, like pass through fire, and all the things that are made of wood and hay and stubble, they burn up. But the things that are made of gold and silver and precious stones, they last. What is it in your life that will last? 
What is it that in your life that through the return of Christ and judgment stays? I pray that God gives us a view of eternity, a deeper love for Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we ask now that you would allow us a deep, passionate love for your son, Jesus, for your greater glory in all things, for stepping and walking in step with your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would orient us to not just the horizontal things around us, not the stuff or the positions or whatever else it may be. Lord, give us a passion and a thirst to live before you for your glory. Give us a massive view of who you are so that we might set aside these desires that slow us down. I pray all of these things for your greater glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.